will love it so much. But also, like, I think as we go into this Thanksgiving season, I always like to remind us that it is a season of difficulty for a lot of people. You know, I, I think as Americans, we have a good way of whitewashing our past and creating myths to make us feel better about our current reality. And I just want to remind you, I tell my kids this every Thanksgiving meal, right as we're sitting down, and they're like, oh, Dad, again? Yes, again. In 1491, there were about 145 million Native Americans who lived in the America, the the, the America, what is now America. By 1691, 200 years later, the population of indigenous Americans had declined by 95%. 130 million people had died in less than 200 years after the, the Europeans arrived. Now, there are lots of reasons for that. Some are inadvertent and some were very intentional. But I think as we move into a celebration of being thankful, it's necessary that we remember that we don't just go along with the myth that is Thanksgiving to make ourselves feel better but that we should realize that us as white Western Europeans have come here and live here, that was at great cost to many people. And so we should remember that. And as we enter Thanksgiving, maybe how can we be a part of remembering that, honoring that, and maybe reaching out to some people who have suffered so greatly because of that. Anyway, um, that's a buzzkill, I know, this morning. <laughs> about Thanksgiving. Some people accuse me of ruining all their holidays, and yes, I'm sorry. I am the destroyer of all holidays, and um, yeah, my wife's always like, you should celebrate more holidays, but then I'm like, but this holiday is rooted in the supremacy of, and she's like, shut up. Just take a day off, man. (laughs) No, I can't. Um, I saw this, this beautiful, and I, 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 maybe I've said it before, it's one of my favorite Chinese proverbs because, like, well, I know so many of them. Uh, maybe this is the only one that I know. It says this, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is right now. I love that. This idea of, yeah, we should have done that, but if you haven't done that, you should do this now. Today I want to talk about hope because we are moving into an Advent season where one of the centerpieces of the Advent season is hope. But what is hope? It's interesting. I was thinking about this all week. What is hope? What is hope, y'all? What is hope? What is hope? Like we know what it is, right? Like we say, well, I hope things get better or I got a lot of hope that this will change. But like so hope is this idea that, that the future will be different than the present, right? And we can go about changing that in some way. But it's fascinating what psychology says that hope is. Like, I think sometimes we think hope is just wishful thinking, right? Uh, I am, uh, by self-admission, not the most optimistic person. How can you be optimist? Not optimistic, but yet hopeful. Mm, There's a way. There's a way. Snyder, this guy, I don't know who he is, but he came up with, he did a lot of work on hope, and he said this, that hope is a positive cognitive state based on a sense of successful goal-directed determination and planning to meet these goals. In other words, hope is like a snapshot of a person's current goal-directed thinking, highlighting the motivated pursuit of goals and the expectation that those goals can be achieved. 
Ah, you see, I think maybe sometimes we, th- we, we, we live in this state of despair and we think, ah, oh, you know, I hope, I hope, I hope things will change. But hope requires us to be doing something about that to bring about some change. Ah, this is interesting, isn't it, to me? Like, so it's different than wishful thinking. I think a lot of times, like especially right now, in many people's lives, we are like, oh, things are just not good. I hope that it will get better. Okay, what are you doing about that? And if you're not doing anything about making that better, then it's just wishful thinking. That you're just wishing that things will get better. But hope necessitates action. Hope has three elements. It has the goal that you are thinking that you want to change. It has a pathway or strategy to get there. And it requires initiation and agency to sustain that directed, your, your action toward the directed goal. So it requires a goal, a strategy, and initiation and agency to get there. So, so hope is not just you like, well, I hope things get better and just sit back and do nothing. That's not hope, y'all. That's wishing. Hope is movement. I, I also love what those lacking hope, on the other hand, tend to adopt mastery goals. Maybe this is where a lot of people are. People with mastery goals choose easy tasks that don't offer a challenge or opportunity for growth. When they fail, they quit. People with mastery goals accept, act helpless and feel a lack of control over their environment. They don't believe in their capacity to obtain the kind of future they want. They have no hope. They have mastery goals. Hey, I will, be- I will become a master of this thing that I can control. So hope, in essence, is the belief that you can create the type of future that you desire. Ooh. Hope is the belief and the action to create the type of future that you desire. It's like putting out stepping stones, right? Like, I don't have any stepping stones here, but y'all know what stepping stones are. So I'm going to use these carpet tiles because we had them left over in the back. Good. Reuse, recycle, reduce. And so like... A stepping stone is like, here's our goal out there somewhere, right? Their goal is to change our environment, to change our situation. I'm not satisfied with the way that things are, maybe in my life or in the society around me. And so we're going to make a goal. Our goal is to change that thing, to become whatever it is out there. And then we're going to become a strategy. And the strategy is the stepping stones. And then we're going to initiate that by stepping on them, right? And we're going to move into that space. I'm not just stepping stone. You want to step on a stone? Yes. That's my prop. That was all planned. Thank you. And then we put out another one and we say, that's our goal. We're going to get there. And it's hard to get there. And sometimes we, we put them out a little bit too far or too close. And then we step into the next one. And then we step into the next one and we keep those going all until we meet the goal that we have for ourselves. Like hope requires agency. It requires action. It is not just some sense of, well, I hope things will change. And that's it. That's not hope. Hope is coming up with a goal, having a strategy to make that goal happen, and then doing it. And you may fail. You may fail. But as Martin Luther King said, hope is a willingness to risk failure. Hope is a willingness to risk failure. 
because we believe in that thing so deeply and we want that change so much inside of ourselves. It is like a fire in our bones. We will risk failing because failure in trying is better than failure in doing nothing, than doing nothing at all. And so we move and we move to action. Today our text comes in Isaiah. And Isaiah Like To understand Jesus, you really need to understand Isaiah because Jesus quotes Isaiah over and over and over again in Jesus' ministry. He is like the fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah is leading before us. But you wonder, I say in Isaiah, it's like all of the text, right? We always have to understand the backstory of what God has done before, of where God is bringing the people. And we know that God created humans to live in a garden and it was good. But those things fell off and humans chose our own desires and selfish ambitions above what God had created for us. And we made those choices and we still make those choices. And those choices pushed us out of the garden and into exile. And so here we are, God's story begins in a garden, but it ends in a city. God's story begins in a garden where everything was shalom or peace, ultimate encompassing peace. But yet our decisions and our choices push us out and created discontentment and division and, and, and hurt and pain. And so the story of God goes in Genesis and Exodus and through the Torah and the kings and then into the prophets. All of this story is about God trying to get people back to a state of peace. But yet we rebel and we push back and we hold back. But God is moving us. And finally, through this space, God created this city called Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a representation. It is in many ways a metaphor for what things will be like in heaven. It is a metaphor for what God is doing to create all things new, as we just sang about. God is the one who makes beautiful things, who creates newness. Jerusalem, Jeru Shalom, is how we get that word, Jerusalem. It is the city of Shalom. It is the city of peace. That represents what God is doing to make all things new. But yet that too, as we read in Isaiah, that too gets corrupted. Humans have this tendency, this capacity, this ability to corrupt everything that we touch, right? It is remarkable how good we are at that, of messing things up, right? We have this remarkable talent to mess things up. Yes, we're so good at it. Just have children and we see how they mess everything up sorry Luke it's hard to be married to a pastor I mean I'd be the pastor to your dad (laughs) poor kids But here we come to the end of Isaiah after Isaiah had been talking about the the corruption that had been in Jerusalem, the way that the religious leaders were abusing their powers, the way that the rich had been discarding the poor and, and not remembering their call to God and pursuing success above that of their neighbor that hurt each other. And in this grand sort of closure... Isaiah gives these words, this sort of vision to what God desires and what God will do in the coming age. In Isaiah 65, it says this, 
See, God is saying, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For I will create Jerusalem Jerusalem, to be a light and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it infants who live but a few days, or older people who do not live out their years. Those who die at a hundred will be thought mere youths. Those who fail to reach a hundred will be considered cursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people, my chosen ones who long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. When they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of God for us and all the people of God. This is the hope that God had given to the prophet Isaiah for the people of Israel, saying, this is the plan. This is what we are shooting for. This is what I will do, God is saying. I will create a world where there is peace in every place. That there is harmony. That the, that the broken relationships that are causing pain come together. That the social interactions that bring about division will be ended. And everyone no matter what their social status is in life, no matter what their immigration status is, they will live in harmony and luxury in the way that their creator had intended. That their lives will match and be a reflection of the generous, create, the generous outpouring of God's wealth upon their lives. Everyone will be able to live in that sort of peace and grace and shalom. This is the vision. And this is the vision that Jesus takes up upon himself and says, I am coming to create this space, a new kingdom, a new place, a new reality where there is peace and shalom for every person. Goal, strategy, initiation, and agency. Jesus is the full reflection of hope. It is the hope that we have because Jesus had action and movement to bring us to that space. But it didn't stop there, you remember. After Jesus had done the work that Jesus came to do, Jesus left and said, Now, church, I'm leaving the work to you. And I'm giving you the Spirit of God. So in the very bosom of our humanity, we are given the Spirit of the living God within us to empower us and to move us, to give us that agency to action. See, God, God didn't just leave and say, hey, y'all, don't worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about it. I'll take care of everything. You just give me some time, and I'll make this Jerusalem, this new heaven and a new earth for you. Just don't worry about it. Just sit back and do your thing. Just seek your own life and do your thing, y'all. Nope, that wasn't the call. 
The call was, I'm giving you all the spirit of the living God so that you can go out and work to bring about the reality of this hope. You see, we are part of bringing about this vision of God. Now, we can't do it on our own, but we're not trying to do it on our own because God has given us the spirit of God's self to live within us. Man, if we grasp that, I think we would live a little differently. But it is hard to grasp. I understand. It's hard for me to grasp too. But what I'm saying is that God didn't just sit back and be like, y'all don't have any responsibility. Y'all are good. No, God said, you are going to be co-workers and co-partners in bringing about this vision for the world. This vision for those who are suffering. This vision for humanity. You have a role in this story. You have a role in this unfolding narrative of hope and grace and mercy. You are part of this. But what happens, right, as we go along in life, what happens is we we see this vision, we have this hope, but then life happens. Life just strikes us and strikes us and strikes us and strikes us until we get this sense of numbness, right? We become numb in some ways to this sort of vision. We hear so much bad news, we just can't take it, right? That sometimes you just can't listen to any more of the news. You just have to turn off the TV. You just have to turn off the radio. You just can't read the articles anymore because it's just too hard. We feel overwhelmed. We feel paralyzed because we feel like we can't make any difference. What difference can I make in the world? How can I bring about any change? Whether I want to or not, I, I, I just feel like I'm too insignificant. No, friends, you have been given the spirit of the living God that created the cosmos with a word that overcame death and hell. Now that spirit is living inside of you to empower you to do good things. You are not on your own, and you are not too weak, and you are not too frail. You can change the world because it is not just you who are trying to do it. It is the spirit that is living in you that is working in you as well to do those good things. But we become numb, and so we shrink away, and we exchange hope for wishful thinking. And we find it easier to do the things that we want in life. Maybe the goal of the hope of personal prosperity. And we've exchanged the hope of a Jerusalem, of a vision of a new heaven and new earth where shalom is for every person. We've exchanged that sort of hope for the hope of my own personal prosperity. And we got those stepping stones, don't we? Oh, yes, we do. Oh, money, success, career, retirement. This is my plan. This is my goal. We got that down. Boom. We know how to do it. It is like writing on the back of our hand. We got that. But maybe God is calling us to be something more. Asking us to maybe put down 
come and follow me, to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, to put down your desires for your own personal prosperity, your hopes for your own personal prosperity, and to take up the cross and say, I will seek the hope that God has in the world for shalom for all people everywhere. And I will use the gifts and talents that God has given me, not just for my own personal gain, but for the benefit of the world around me. You see, church, God is constantly calling us to break open our lives for the benefit of those around us. To make a hope map for the world around us. How do we get there? How do we get there? I mean, mean, this week is, is just... To me, this week as I was listening to news over the last couple of weeks about children. Children are the canaries in our society. You know, the coal miners, I grew up in Appalachia, so you know, we not around coal miners, but they weren't far. But back in the day, when they didn't have technology, they would take canaries. You all know this. They would take canaries into the coal mines, and when the canary was dead, they realized, we got to get the heck out of here. Like, get out, get out right now, because this is not good. Something's wrong here. We don't know what it is. We can't see the gas. We don't know. But the canary's dead. We got to get out or we will die too. The suffering of children in a society reflect they are like canaries in our society. And when children suffer disproportionately, then our society is on the brink of complete failure. 65,000 children have been separated at the border. 65,000 children. I don't care about your politics. I don't care if you're this side or that side. We cannot do this. Nobody, no child deserves to be separated from their families. I don't care who they are. I look at my enemy and I see my brother. They are my brothers and sisters. But do we care enough about children that are not ours to risk anything about our life? So that ensure them a better life. Just this week it was, came out that there are nearly 5,000. This stat's come out, but it's getting higher and higher. 5,000 homeless children in Wake County. Right now. Right now. 5,000 homeless children. Because housing costs have went through the roof. And so many people have been displaced. Rents have gone up. To where you got to make a pretty good amount of money to even afford a place to live in in Wake County. Wake County is the richest county in North Carolina. And one of the richest counties in the whole South. We have 5,000 homeless children in our county. But we've become numb, haven't we? And we just don't know what to do. So seek my own prosperity. It will make me feel better. I can change that outcome. I don't know what I can do about the 65,000 children at the border. I don't know what I can do about the 5,000 homeless children. Our foster care system is overrun with kids that need a home. But yet, the empire has convinced us that those of us living with the very Spirit of God inside of us can do nothing. We are helpless. That is a lie. That is a lie that we have come to believe about ourselves and about the church, isn't it? We have come to believe the lie that we are insignificant and we can do nothing. And so, 
We have exchanged the, vid- the vision of Jerusalem, the vision of God. Her vision of a bigger house. No, we cannot do that. We cannot believe the lies of the empire that want us to convince us that we can do nothing because we can do something. We can move to action. But it's going to take goals, strategy, and action to get there. So what is it for us? What are we going to do, church? What are we going to do? I think we should not quite be satisfied with gathering, which is this is good, and we're doing it, gathering home goods for foster kids coming out of foster care. I think we should do that, yes. But I don't believe we should be satisfied with that. I think we should do more. Because what if we did a poll, an anonymous poll here, and we polled all the 200 and some people that are part of Open Table, and we asked you, how much do you make? Mm, Like, you know, like, we put that together, and we pulled that, and we came up with a number. Maybe we should do this. We pulled that number, and we said, here's how much wealth our church represents. And I know we got dead out our ears. We got commitments. I know life is hard, and it feels like you can make $100,000 in America right now, in Raleigh right now, and it's still not enough. Like, I get it. I get it. But what's our number? What's our wealth number here? Now, let's take that wealth number, and let's say, what are we doing as a church? Is it proportionate? Does it match? Or could we do more? Could we do more? See, I think that we have believed in the lies, that we have become numb, but we need to recapture the vision of Jerusalem, the vision of a new heaven, a new earth. This is what my, um, my dear friend, I wish he was a friend, I met him once, and um, Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorite people, Old Testament theologians, this is a little bit long, so settle in, and he says this, about this text. He said, such qualities are not simply theological ideas, but conditions that prevail in actual social relationships. Brueggemann is unsatisfied with making this some vision about the future and only about the future. Brueggemann says, this is the vision of everyone everywhere because this is God's desire for the future, which is also God's desire for the now, and so it must also be our desire for the now and the future. The first quality of this new city, stated negatively and then positively, is a stability and order that guarantees long life. As long as a city is both a practitioner and victim of violence and brutality, no life is safe and no one will last very long. Thus, we may imagine a violent, threatening social circumstance or assault, threat, or fear permeating of weeping and cries of distress, but no more. Moreover, it is possible to think that infant mortality is an index of the quality of community life. In a disordered, uncaring community, too many babies die too soon from neglect, from malnutrition, from violence, from poor health, and bad medical service. But no more. This is a city that will have a sustained infrastructure in which life is not endlessly at risk. Positively, it is asserted that premature death will be an exception that constitutes a judgment. Such death is not ordinary or taken as routine. It is to be insisted, I assume, that a guaranteed long life of well-being is not to be equated with medical advances that extend life expectancy in order to keep people alive in various states of misery and dysfunction. 
Such is a vision of the future as conjured by our technological capacity would be completely incongruous with the coming shalom of Jeru Shalom. Thus, the vision is not only of extended quality of life, but of quality of life congruent with the gifts of a generous creator. There will be a reordering of resources so that all may luxuriate in the life as the creator intends. The effects of the newness of Yahweh is to turn old curses into blessings, old community-destroying practices into community-enhancing assurances where no one is threatened, nobody is at risk, nobody is in jeopardy because the new city has policies, practices, and protective structures that guarantee that what must have been envisioned as an egalitarian possibility. This church is our vision. This is our vision of peace. There are two ways to attain peace. The first way is to end the noise by silencing the opposition, right? In other words, it is like creating peace by sending your crying child into their room where they will continue to cry in their room and bang on the door to get out. That I think we have settled for that sort of peace. But the other sort of peace, and I believe is God's peace, is eliminating the need to be in opposition to one another. That is the sort of peace that God desires. So how do we do that? How do we get there? How do we do that? I think first, we need to refuse to become numb to the needs of the other. When we hear the stats, we have to let it penetrate us. Yes, it will make us sad. Yes, It will be difficult to hear, but we must hear it. We must be attuned to the suffering of the world. Because if we are not attuned, then we cannot be moved to action. Our hearts must be broken by the needs of those around us. So let us refuse to become numb. Second, we need to create a hope map. This is a little personal project you can do. You can look this up online. There's all sorts of hope maps. It's basically you get a sheet of paper and you say, hey, here's where we want to go. How do we get there? And then we take, here, we're going to do this and this and this and this, assuming that all this won't go as planned. And so we will have to adjust along the way. We will have to make detours, reroutes. We will have to make newness in the process. But here's where we want to get to. And here are the stepping stones to get there. We need a hope map. I think we need to do this as a church. I'm not going to do that for you. Like, y'all the church. I'm the pastor. I'd like to participate in that with you. But if we want to do that, it needs to be together. For us to do that together. We need to set a goal as a church, as an individual, as a church. We need to develop a strategy to get there. And we need to have the agency to sustain our action along the way. May we be that church that uses the gifts that we have been given to seek the prosperity of those around us. Then may we be the church that seeks the city of Jerusalem above and beyond our own personal building projects. It is hard. It is hard. I will be the first to admit. We want to give up. And we face personal challenges in our life too, don't we? But I think this is the counterintuitive nature of Jesus. That the more we focus on our own personal problems, the more we become consumed with our own personal problems. 
But when we focus on the problems of others, not exclusively, but when we begin to focus on those and alleviating those problems, that we find that our problems begin to get solved. In this irony of sorts, it is the whole seek the benefit of the other above your own, to love your neighbor above yourself, like yourself. We can't give up. We got, we've been called to do big things, called to do hard things. Not just us as Open Table, all Christians everywhere. We are the church. We have the spirit of the living God living in us. We've been given a commission, and we must embrace that. We must seek the vision of a new heaven and a new earth, knowing that we can help alleviate pain and suffering. We will have to rely on God, but we'll also in this sort of paradoxical way, we can't complete that vision, and we will need God to interject to create all things new, but we can't just sit back and wait for God to create all things new. We have a responsibility as well to set goals, develop a strategy, and have the agency to sustain that journey today what is it for you what is that goal for you maybe you feel like your life is without hope today maybe you feel like your own life is suffering and you just want peace in your own life i believe god wants to give that make a make a hope map develop that where do you want to be where do you want to get to then set the goal the steps to get there And then surround your people, surround yourself with people that are going to help you sustain that journey. They're going to give you a little kick in the rear when you're feeling like you can't go on. We all need those people. What is it for you today? And what is it for us as a church? How are we going to engage in the suffering of our children around us to say, oh, no, 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 no. We might not be able to solve the the problem of, of teen homelessness and child homelessness in Wake County. But we also can't just sit back and do nothing about it. We must engage. We must do something together, collectively, to use the force of our blessing for the benefit of others so that no one will be in jeopardy and no one will be at risk because that is God's desire for the world. Don't give up, y'all. Don't give up. Keep pressing on. We can do good things together. Let this be our vision. Let this guide us and let it sustain us. Let's pray together. God of heaven and earth, we give you thanks for this incredible vision that you have laid out before us, for this vision of hope and renewal. God, it feels overwhelming sometimes. It feels like we're just so small. But Lord, we pray for your spirit to move in a mighty way. We pray for your spirit to work in us, to move in us, to compel us to do hard things for your benefit and your kingdom. Lord, help us to set a goal, to develop a strategy, and have the action to make that a reality. Lord, in this moment, I pray that you would impress upon us in this room what that goal is what that goal is, and help us to have the boldness to come together and to say, we're going to set that together. Lord Jesus, compel us, motivate us, and move us to action, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.